What we're gonna do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode from the WW Radio Archives. I am Lou Mangello, and this is show number 712. And each week on Thursdays, we're gonna select an evergreen episode from the archives to share with you that maybe you haven't heard before or maybe one that you haven't heard in a long time. From interviews to top tens, reviews, guides, wayback machines, and more, it's gonna be a great way to visit and revisit some of our favorite episodes, people, and other ones maybe you've suggested that I share from the vault. And rather than upload the entire episode, what I'm doing is taking out the relevant portions and segments, cutting out the intro and outro and and were applicable some out-of-date news and rumors. If you want to hear the full episode, I'll let you know what the original show number is so you can go back into your podcast player or feed and find and listen to the entire episode. As I've said before, I'm not taking anything away by adding these episodes to the feed. I'm not gatekeeping anything that you have to pay for. Instead, I just want to share some of my and your favorites that you may have missed or hadn't heard before. So I'm going into the archives again this week, and on last night's WDW Radio Live show, what you do every Wednesday on Facebook at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, WDWRadioLive.com, I was inspired by some conversations that we were having about the theming of Walt Disney World Resort rooms and possible theming and some armchair imaginary ideas that those people who are watching live were suggesting some very, very interesting, very creative directions it was going. And by the way, if you ever want to watch any of the live videos that you may have missed, you can find them on the WW Radio page on Facebook or at youtube.com slash WW Radio. And while that sparked an idea for an episode from the archives that I want to revisit in the next week or so, after visiting Epcot yesterday and thinking about what the future of that park, specifically the Imagination Pavilion, might possibly be, I went way back into the WW Radio archives to bring you one of my earliest interviews. So let's go back to 2007 and show number 30, when, as part of my Legends of Disney Imagineering features, I shared my conversation with former Imagineer Steve Kirk. Now, Steve helped come up with the initial concepts for Figment and the Dreamfinder, as well as the Journey into Imagination attraction. And he also helped develop some of Disney's most memorable characters, attractions, pavilions, and even complete theme parks, including being the creative leader of Tokyo Disney Sea. Which, now that I have visited and fallen in love with Tokyo Disney Sea, maybe I need to find Steve once again. But we also talked about Epcot, the studios, and a lot more. And I would later come to interview his brother, Tim, about his work at Imagineering, specifically at the Disney MGM Studios. But that's going to be another trip to the archives for another day. And I was trying to remember or even look back in my old emails and conversations with Steve, how I came upon him and his name. I think I just did a lot of research. It came up and I eventually found Steve and his brother, both of whom were incredibly kind and gracious and generous with their time. So I'll share Tim's uh, the next few weeks or so. I'd love to hear your thoughts after you've had a chance to listen to my conversation with Steve. 
Come be part of the community and conversation. Let me know what you think by over in the WW Radio Clubhouse at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. You can also call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. And if you have a suggestion for a future archives episode or something you'd like to hear on the show, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com and always connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangello. But for now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation, and forgive my voice, with the fascinating and talented Steve Kirk. As part of our continuing series, where we get the opportunity to meet some legends of Disney Imagineering, I'm pleased to welcome someone whose accomplishments with the company during his 25-year career fit that bill of truly being legendary. Beginning as a show designer at Walt Disney Imagineering, my next guest conceived and designed some of Disney's most memorable characters, attractions, pavilions, and even complete theme parks. And for more than a decade, he served as the creative leader of Tokyo Disney Sea in his role as Senior Vice President. So I am pleased to welcome former Walt Disney Imagineer Steve Kirk to the WDW Radio Show. Hi, Lou. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm really excited to, uh, to have the opportunity to talk to you. Well, my pleasure. So, you know, Mr. Kirk, it's so, uh, you've had such a, a long, remarkable career at WDI. Um, but before we kind of talk about some of those accomplishments and specific projects. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started at Imagineering? Well, let's see. Um, I went to Cal State Long Beach uh, and got a degree in illustration, a BFA. And while I was there, um, an associate of mine, a friend of mine actually, named Roly Crump, who was the, um, the, uh, the designer back with Walt who did the Tower of the Four Winds and was the, uh, one of the producers, or the producer, I guess, on um, Small World. And he knew my brother, and uh, he said, and uh, we kind of recruited us to to do a couple of jobs uh, with him um, uh, for Bush Gardens way back in '75. Then in '76, um, the uh, Imagineering web then was starting to recruit designers, and uh, really just started back there again after being gone in Florida for a while. And uh, so I went to work there, and I, I got an interview with um, some of the the um, the resident designers there. One was Tony Baxter, uh, and Tim Delaney was were another, was another one that, that uh, um, took a look at my portfolio. Um, I was hired, and uh, Tony and I started working together on Discovery Bay, which was really really exciting. Um, I worked on a, a little show called Professor Marvel's Gallery of Illusion for Discovery Bay, and uh, created a little character, a little little sculpture of uh, Professor Marvel uh, holding his his little pet dragon. And uh, he actually popped up, oh, about oh, about a year later uh, in the Epcot Pavilion. Yeah, you know, and again, you're leading me exactly where I wanted to go because, you know, in in looking at your body of work, and I'm going to talk some more about some of the things that you've done. There's so much that I can and, and would love to talk to you about, but specifically, one of your creations is something that I want to focus on because what we've been doing, especially with Epcot's 25th coming up, as part of this Epcot retrospective series that we're doing is highlighting and exploring some of these pavilions and their attractions. And you really ha had a, a large hand in creating 
one of the most beloved characters, not only in Epcot or in the Imagination Pavilion, but one of uh, Disney's, you know, probably greatest uh, characters in recent history. And, and of course, what we're talking about Figment. Well, it, it, it's kind of an anomaly because, um, again, my theme park days before Disney, during Disney, and now after Disney, the you know the conventional wisdom is that you really can't introduce a character uh, to the public in a theme park. It almost has to be um, via some other media, either animation or live action or, or something. Um, with a few exceptions, um, like Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, which were all new characters at the time, uh, Small World, again, a, a new introduction of, of styling and characters, and the Imagination Pavilion with Figment and Dreamfinder, they're about the only examples I can think of offhand of product, uh, of intellectual product, that um, came along um, bef- before or actually exclusive of any media. So it, it's kind of, I think it's, it's basically... It's luck in a lot of ways, but it's also, I think, the character being in the right place at the right time. Well, I think it's the character itself, too. And we've talked a lot about Figment specifically because there's something – Figment has this quality, This whether it's his childlike innocence or his curiosity or whatever it is that appeals to people on so many different levels. And I think that's why he, even more so than characters that are nameless from some of the attractions like Small World and Pirates, has – not only got such a following, but really has become, um, you know, almost a, a cult icon um, to Disney fans. Well, it's it's interesting, I, and again, I can't don't quite know how to explain it. Um, I, I can say one thing that, as as you already know, the Imagineering, Wed and Imagineering, were definitely big group efforts. And while I got got the ball rolling um, in, unintentionally with Figment and uh, Dreamfinder. Um, in the initial design and, and concept of uh, working with Tony, it really, there, was, there were several iterations of him afterwards. Um, an illustrator named Andy Gaskell, uh, um, sculptors, and um, a, a number of, of um, other interpreters of those two characters helped him evolve, uh, helped both characters evolve over time. So the, the product that you actually see as a walk around uh, in the park or uh, in, in the ride what they used to be, really were the end evolution of a, of a, of a quite a team effort. Yeah, and the, the genesis of Figment is something that I think is very, very interesting. Uh, you know, the legendary story of Tony Baxter watching an episode of Magnum P.I., um, you know, coming up with the idea of quantifying something uh, about a figment of the imagination. But really it was you and Andy Gaskell and Exitensio that kind of gave him form and substance, whereas Tony really came up with the name and the idea. Yeah, in fact, Tony, um, and again, it, 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 it's really interesting, the kind of the genesis of some of this stuff, but going back to Discovery Bay, Dreamfinder, it wasn't called Dreamfinder then, it was Professor Marvel, as per the Wizard of Oz thing, um, that Tony really wanted to have kind of this traveling wizard magician type, um, um, almost a Circus of Dr. Lowe uh, type of, of uh, venue show presentation type thing. And that character stuck in Tony's mind, I think, and I think he confirmed this when he got into the Imagination Pavilion as being a host and kind of a, um, you know, an embodiment of the imaginative process. So, using Figment as the foil to um, Professor to um, uh, Dreamfinder, it was a great way to explore the subject matter that we wanted to explore for the Imagination Pavilion. And if you can, Mr. Crook, for for those people who may not be all that familiar with the Discovery Bay concept for Disneyland that never really took place. Kind of synopsize for us what that was and then kind of how Professor Marvel 
ended up becoming the dream finder? Um, I'm, I don't, don't want to repeat what Tony's probably already told you, but the anecdote, <laughs> as, as I remember it, was I was in my office. Uh, we'd all been taken off of every other project except Epcot. So everyone had been reassigned from Disneyland, from Disney World, um, you know, Magic Kingdom and so forth, um, on that, on to Epcot, and everybody was, was part of a pavilion. Tony was in with the um, uh, Kodak folks and as being potential sponsors for some kind of pavilion. And again, I don't think he quite knew yet what their tie-in would be. And um, he ran into my office in the middle of this meeting and said, can I borrow the little Figment and, and Dreamfinder, or, or Figment and um, uh, yeah, Dreamfinder at the time. And he grabbed it and took it into them to show it to them. And, and he said, this is the kind of character development we can do as being a host for a pavilion, maybe on imagination. And they said, that's great. Do we get the dragon too? And, and Tony said, oh, yeah, 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 the dragon, you know, kind of threw the dragon in as a, as a you know, this, this is kind of how I remember him telling me the story. The only issue was that uh, at the time, the uh, dragon was painted green, figment was green, and uh, Kodak thought that represented a little too much of a Fuji connection, so uh, he, he turned purple as a result of that. You know, it's, it's, it's so funny because you hear so many of these stories, and we talk about some of these stories, and you never know if they're true, if they're just kind of urban legend that kind of gets its own thing. So it's great to have them confirmed from somebody that was actually there. And uh, and I've actually seen a photograph of, I guess, some of the early sculpture work of a very different looking Dreamfinder with his uh, monocle and, and white mustache and beard holding this this green, very skinny looking dragon. Yeah, that that kind of represents my little more acid uh, approach <laughs> to character design, a little, a little more edgy kind of a sarcastic approach. Um, and he got he got the edges. Actually, Andy Gaskell put some really nice edges on him, and Exidencio took his angle on it. And then finally, when he was sculpted dimensionally, uh, he evolved into to what he is today. And he, he got a lot a lot cuter as he as he grew older. I think <laughs> there's a uh, there's a quote saying that that Exitensio made him lovable in a way that kids could actually relate to. Yeah, and at the time at the time I wasn't quite sure, but in, in retrospect, it really was a good call because I think that um, that kind of that all the the, uh, the curves and all that business and the design really did did help make him a, a very appealing character. The Dreamfinder character, kind of tell us how he, he, he came to be, how he, where you came up with the concept of him going around the universe collecting all these magical things um, and coming up with the dream port and the dream vehicle. Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to remember. Um, uh, we, Tony and I were, and, and, and again, other writers and, and illustrators and designers, we had con- a lot of concept blue sky sessions. And I think... Tony had the idea of that new ideas are the product of collecting old ideas and then synthesizing them into a third new product. I think that was kind of a new idea. That was kind of the basic premise of the storyline. So the idea of some kind of a metaphor for gathering um, creative ideas or, or even natural things or other concepts that have been that have been existing before, recombining them was was the angle. And so. We knew we had to start the show out with some way of showing the Dreamfinder and Figment were collecting um, stuff, you know, um, scientific stuff, artistic stuff, natural stuff, whatever. And so for him to have a device that collected and then stored and took them back to his, his workshop seemed to be a pretty straightforward, again, it's all a model for the way the human mind works in, in one, in one uh, scenario. So um, I had done a lot of, of assemblage-type 
uh, whimsical Victorian flying machines in my portfolio and, and uh, in my history before that. And so Tony and I thought, well, why not build a machine that the character can actually be piloting uh, and with a vacuum bag at the back that was you know, sucking up all these great ideas for, for use later on. And so I just sat down on my little workbench there and uh, as an inch scale model, built this from just junk, stuff I'd found, stuff I'd stolen from the, from the model shop or the, the, the tool crib or whatever. And, um, and then drawings were drawn of that machine um, and they, 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 they mass produced six of these things in full scale and they were quite large. They were like, I don't know, I'm trying to remember, like 25 feet total length or something. So I remember going to, over to Mapo and seeing uh, six of these things laid out on the, on the um, you know, full scale, laid out on the, uh, the construction floor. And it was just amazing. I mean, it was like something like from World War II, seeing these, these you know, <laughs> fighter planes being assembled in, in Moss. And really impressive. I was amazed that I got that far with that thing. Yeah, the, 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 um, the concept for it and how it was all put together and kind of like you said, that, that kind of Jules Verne-esque uh, quality to it. Is something that that was wonderful, and unfortunately, the only place we can still see it today is the one that's up in Mouse Gear, kind of up um, near the ceiling. Oh, is that where it is? Okay. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's the only one I've seen. Um, you know, outside the attraction, once it was taken down. But how much beyond the characters themselves and some of those initial things? How much of the actual story of the original Journey to Imagination did you have a hand in? I, I just worked with the concept group. Uh, Tony led it, and uh, there were I think there must have been oh my gosh. A couple of writers, uh, me, I think my brother Tim was involved in some of the, the brainstorming sessions. Uh, as I said, these things were, were very large um, uh, collaborative efforts. And uh, while Tony, again, was the, the torchbearer for the overall concept, uh, it, it really did pass through a lot of other hands, uh, you know, with, with his guidance. I think one thing that, that still remains fascinating about the original attraction to me, and I keep referring to the original because I think maybe some some of the newer generation doesn't remember uh, the original, which is very, very different than what we have today, is how you were able to quantify things like the arts and literature and science and make them into real tangible things that we could see and smell and really relate to, you know, the, our, our own human mind. Well, it, it probably, if you think about, oh gosh, uh, everything in Epcot and most of the things at theme parks, it's the most metaphorical um, this model you'd call it for the creative process and it really really was tough in a lot of ways and in that to come up with a good a good um, I don't know what you call it I guess model would be it for the creative process is really really an abstract uh, uh, thing obviously and has all kinds of different interpretations we did a lot of research a lot of reading and in, in the end at the end of the day we just kind of sat down and thought well as creative people ourselves what what is the process? You know, how do you start? What are the mid what are the mid points in the in the thing? And what is the, what are the final products? So in a lot of ways, after doing all this research, we just kind of looked into ourselves and said, well, this is this is a, not not a bad model for how we work anyway. Right. And we we talked when we talked about the attraction how there were really these these four basic show scenes of arts, literature, performing arts, and science. And when you started in the arts section, one of the most memorable parts about it for me was this giant sort of white artist palette. And it was kind of, I guess, a metaphor for us starting our journey, our mind being a blank canvas. But the use of color and light and sound really gave that scene so much life. And again, that's something I, I still remember to this day. Yeah, in fact, uh, we, we wanted to give each one of those those key scenes uh, an attitude, you know, a, 
audio, lighting, uh, the sculptural forms, the animation, the vignettes that represented Figment as the, the story thread through all of this, and how he was in, was working in these different environments with this different um, genre. So um, I think they really were very distinct. In fact, I can remember them pretty clearly even today as far as, as them not being um, blurred or, or indistinct. Especially going from, I remember specifically, transitioning from arts to literature, which was very dark and very scary, and the music, you know, being the same song was was still so very foreboding. It really had a very different feel than what came before, and then obviously the very fun sort of performing arts, Broadway-style theater scene that came after. Yeah, and it, I think it's like a, like a symphony or anything else, that to hit all the notes and, and to have the different contrast, to have the different attitudes, um, then with the big finale at the end, um, I, I really think it was um, for what for what it was attempted to do was relatively successful. I, I think it was very very successful, and you know, unfortunately, the attraction closed uh, for a variety of reasons in 1998. It op- reopened a year later as Journey into Your Imagination. Unfortunately, without Dreamfinder and Figment, how how did you feel when that when that change took place? Well, I thought I was I was a little disappointed. I mean, I thought well, I, everything has a Nothing lasts forever, um, you know, except Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and um, I was thinking, well, I was I was grateful that it had as as, as long um, a lifespan as it had. And then I guess eventually I've been told the there was a um, the, the guests really wanted to see the two characters come back, and that that was sort of responsible for the Renaissance, I guess, and them returning. And that's amazing, and that's something you know people have talked about, sort of the. Uh the kind of fan outcry when Mr. Toad was going to close, but it was nothing like Figment because it wasn't just hardcore fans or people online. I mean, there were guests going to guest relations complaining that Dreamfinder and Figment weren't there, and it's a testament to how powerful the character, especially of Figment, really was to to the everyday guest. Well, you know, it's funny, and I'm not a very good anecdote teller, but I think one of the most significant things that have happened to me in my professional life I was in a market somewhere, and I was uh, checking out. And on the on the the cash um, the, the Gallup cash register had a little purple figment, um, you know, glued to the top of her cash register. And I said, "Oh, have you been to Epcot?" And she goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, I, I really love Epcot, and our kids love Epcot." And I said, "Well, you know, I, I actually designed had a part in designing that little character." And then she goes, and she was very very excited, and and I said, uh, and she says, "Oh, that's fabulous." And then she got kind of misty a little bit and said, "You know." It meant a huge amount to my daughter, who was was there on some children's program, who was dying of cancer, and she said that the the Figment and Dreamfinder figure were were hosting them, and that was one of her her daughter's fondest and happiest and, and last, as it turns out, memories. And I and I just I just didn't know what to say. I kind of choked up, and and I actually finally believed that I that those characters did have some impact on people. And clearly, they still do to this day. Fortunately, you know, Figment came back in a, in a slightly different form when Journey into Your Imagination with Figment reopened. Uh, is that anything that you had a hand in, or was it just kind of did they just bring the character back and put him back into the attraction? No, I was I was really busy on Japanese projects at the time, so I really didn't have any um, uh, any input or anything to do with that actually. How do you feel about the attraction now with Figment versus your original concepts and, and the original attraction when it opened? Well, I have to be honest, I, I really haven't seen it. So <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. Well, I can tell you that it's nothing like the original attraction. And uh, while it's great to have him back, it's still 
it doesn't there's something missing um there, there's a certain quality that's missing that was there in the first attraction and there's been rumors for for some time now that um it's going to close and it's gonna be refurbished and and you know creative forces like john lasseter and tony baxter still want to kind of redo it and sort of bring it back to his original glory and uh who knows maybe even see Dreamfinder again oh, that'd be great that'd be wonderful yeah, I think a lot of I think a lot of fans, uh, especially from my generation, would uh, would love to see them come back. But uh, you know, we just kind of really scratched the surface of some of the things that you've done while you were at uh, Imagineering, and I guess we could talk for a couple minutes about some of the other things that you did to really help turn Epcot into a reality. I think it's appropriate again with, with the with the 25th anniversary coming up to talk about some of the other things you did for Epcot. Okay. Uh, the, the other two venues that I was seriously involved in, one was the um, Wonders of Life Pavilion. Um, and I, again, I helped um, Barry Braverman and Rolly Crump. Uh, no, Rolly Crump was Lansley, excuse me. Barry Braverman um, generally um, uh, with the overall concept, we worked together. And specifically, the Cranium Command Show. And again, that was um, you know, a, a message in search of a metaphor. Um, and it, it, it's it really the idea of being inside of somebody's head and taking a mechanistic metaphor or model for the human uh, mind-body relationship is, is is an old idea. It goes way back into uh, some of Walt's uh, early animation with uh, emotion and reason. Ward Kimball worked on that, and um, it was also uh, Woody Allen did a did a thing for that with uh, one of his movies. And there have been about a, a half dozen other. Uh, mechanical um, metaphors explaining different aspects of the human body. So we were we were trying to think of a way to talk about um, the whole mind-body relationship as far as stress-related scenarios go, and we thought, well, why not you know be up inside of somebody's head and do a um, a, um, a model, a, you know, a, a, a kind of a cockpit-type approach to the conscious mind. And then that idea grew into more of a Star Trek type uh, bridge of a ship. So in Korean Command right now, it was, there was one character with a supporting cast on, on film in different parts of the body. Originally, there was a captain, a, you know, a Mr. Spock type, a, <laughs> um, um, you know, uh, several ensigns at each of the senses. There was a, um, an officer for, for reason. There was an officer for emotion. So there was a little cast of these little characters about maybe two feet tall in this pretty big theater that was a pretty, uh, you know, involved bridge of a ship, which is, again, inside the, the human head. And after value engineering, we got it down to one character and a robot, which is okay. Um, but it, it turned out to be, I think, again, a, a relatively successful way to explain some pretty complicated um, uh, message units. And um, the neat thing about that show, it was never done, was that it could have been reprogrammed with new software and new animation to tell a whole bunch of different stories hmm. because the, the vehicle of being inside of somebody's head really could t- talk about all kinds of, of health habits, um, autoimmune diseases, um, uh, you know, how digestion works, how musculature and, 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 and the, the, the nervous system works, um, but it, was, it never was. It only had one show, and, and that was kind of the end of it. So that, I, that was, I think a pretty good way to explain some, some other, a little more concrete information than certainly imagination was. Mm-hmm. The well, other... As I was going to say, no, it's, you know, you talk about how tough it was to quantify imagination, trying to quantify 
you know, what you were doing there was great. But and again, I think this is one of Walt Disney World's lost treasures because it was a great show. It had a wonderful celebrity cast to make it fun, to make it uh, something that every generation can enjoy. But I know where you're going with the next one, which is your work on the land. So the challenges of trying to quantify things like that versus trying to make something like nutrition exciting must have been a challenge in yeah, and of itself. That was uh, a challenge. And also to take a, a pretty middle of the road the um, as far as the nutrition versus health habits. Um, how do you say this? Anyway, Kraft Foods was the, was a sponsor. And um, we tried to find something that would, would make them happy and also not be um, um, too controversial from a, oh, how do you say it, um, sponsor-influenced um, message in it. And I think we, we hit a pretty happy middle ground. Moderation was the bottom line in Kitchen Cabaret. We always said that everything in, in moderation, in balance, try to hit the four food groups, all that business. Um, as good as the information, the scientific information was then, we tried to reflect in that show and then put it in as wacky um, context as we could, which was this, you know, you're in a kitchen and all this stuff is singing and dancing and, and doing all this stuff, all the foodstuffs and so forth. So I... I I think those three shows, in their own way, each tried to tell a pretty serious message, um, but with a, a fun kind of a, a Disney slant on them. And that's exactly the word that I was going to use to describe them all, because while they were you know, clearly uh, brilliantly inspired and wonderfully executed, all of them were very, very fun. And again, you're talking about things like nutrition and imagination, things that are very tough to describe, and obviously they still have a lasting impression to this day. Um, you know, the characters themselves and the attractions themselves. I know a lot of people from my generation, especially, still, you know, enjoyed and miss shows like Kitchen Cabaret. Well, I, I like to think that those shows represented a part of the Epcot spectrum, um, you know, which is, again, in the best Disney tradition. You know, you, you make them laugh, you make them cry, you make them think and all that kind of stuff that um, we handled, me and, the, and my immediate associates that I worked with, who I think were wonderful people, all were on the the laughing fun side in general. And um, I think that Epcot at one point actually had a pretty good balance between the real scientific messages, the edutainment stuff, um, and, um, you know, the, the whole world showcase thing. So it, 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 it's um, anybody can criticize projects because they feel short of, of their goals, but you, everyone has to admit that Epcot set some hugely ambitious goals. And I'm I'm just amazed that it was successful as it was, frankly. Yeah, and you led me to the question was, which was how much balance, you know, Epcot early on was was criticized for being too much education as part of the edutainment, um, and, and it was, you know, people considered it to be not fun, it was a learning park. How much did they kind of rein you in, I should say, you know, for balancing fun versus education? Um. It was a kind of a pendulum that sweep back and forth between uh, who you were talking to and what time what time in the evolution of, uh, process uh, you were you were looking at. Um, one, it's funny because the, the character presence in Epcot, we were determined. Everybody that I ever talked to on the project was determined not to have the traditional Disney characters there. Um, we also had the same um, resolution in. Um, Studio Tour, Disney and Gem Studios Tour with, with Bob Weiss and, and that group. And in both cases, the public just demanded and were disappointed that, that, that the traditional characters weren't there, and so they eventually migrated. Um, I think that in some ways the fun quotient 
is going to find its own level in these things. That he, I, I can't, I don't think we ever, could ever be criticized for being too much fun. I do think we could be criticized for being too didactic or too pedantic or whatever the word is. <laughs> now, how do you feel? And I, and I don't know if you've seen the attractions, but clearly there's a move towards bringing uh, characters from outside the park as opposed to creating new characters inside the park in, whether it be the three Caballeros classic characters or bringing Nemo in to a pavilion like the seas. How do you feel about bringing those characters in and changing the whole makeup of the attraction and pavilion? Well, in, in my more purest, um, a little more fanatical days, I would have been very much against it. But after being through Disney and then also being on the outside uh, as a consultant for six years, I really think intellectual properties have to be exploited and used appropriately to the best leverage you can. Because it just, it, people really, if, if it's a good product like Nemo and, and uh, the Pixar stuff and the, and the Disney characters, and it's appropriate, I, you know, you don't want to put Snow White talking about atomic energy or something. <laughs> Um, but if the character is a good spokesperson for that for that message, then I, I'm all for it completely, and I think the public wants it. I agree, and, and I think you know, for example, Nemo and the Seas, the integrity of the pavilion is kept intact. The integrity of the character is kept intact because it, it is such a good fit. And I, and I, even though I am an Epcot purist, uh, I, I have no problem with, it. and I think it works well. And I think you need to do things like that for this next generation of fans that's coming in. And I think as long as in Florida is the particular example, as long as the boundaries between the parks and the, the unique identity of the four parks is maintained and people don't get confused with too much cross-fertilization of material, it'll be okay. Um, and we, we made the same speech to um, the Oriental Land Company about Tokyo Disneyland versus Tokyo Disney Sea, that you can't present the same stuff in the same parks the same way where people really won't see the, the differentiation, won't see the distinction. And the problem in Florida is even worse, because you have four parks, and the temptation, and two water parks, the temptation to start you know, sprinkling everything with a great product, uh, once it comes out, like all of a sudden we see Ratatouille in all four parks or something, that is a real danger. And, and it, that has to be a self-policing thing inside the Disney company and to uh, avoid that kind of confusion. Well, two of the other you know, projects you worked on specifically for Florida are very different than some of the things you did for Epcot, and those are the Great Movie Ride and the Tower of Terror. Well, and again, I was in a very much of a supporting role, not in the lead role at all on, on a Great Movie Ride and Tower of Terror. My, my brother Tim was much more in, uh, um, instrumental in both of those in the, in the concept teams. Um, but I, I did enjoy my, my work with... Um, um, Bob Weiss on the studio tour very, very, very much. And it was a, the idea of behind-the-scenes movie-making, the studio tour format was a really, really neat uh, change of, of anything I'd ever done before, in fact, or in fact since. Um, and the the vehicle of using the making of movies to tell these stories was a really fascinating challenge, and I, I think it, it in its own way um, succeeded pretty well. And obviously, I guess probably one of your things you're most proud of and maybe the crown jewel on your resume is the work that you did. And what I understand, and I unfortunately haven't seen yet personally, is one of the most, most breathtaking and exciting and beautiful of all the Disney parks worldwide, and that's Tokyo Disney Sea. Well, thank you very much. And I, I really am the luckiest theme designer probably on the whole planet to have been <laughs> at the right place. And I'm serious. I mean, it's a, lot of it, a lot of it is simply being at the right place at the right time. Um, 
with the availability of a very decent, respectable budget to, to build it properly, um, and with I think the cream of the of the Imagineering talent pool all coming together in, in one place. And I, I just it, some of it's an accident of history, and some of it is um, I think really, really um, well. I think a lot of people put their best efforts in their careers into that park, and I think it shows, frankly. Again, from the pictures I've seen and the videos I've seen, it's absolutely breathtaking, and I look forward to being able to go and experience it for myself because everyone that I've talked to that's come back from it is, is speechless and just says it, it's far and away uh, the most amazing of the theme parks. Even people who really are you know, Walt Disney World fans or Disneyland fans can't say enough good things about uh, Tokyo Disney Sea. Well, it's it's an, I think it's got its place in the in the in the collection of kingdoms and and and, and theme parks uh, in Disney's portfolio. Um, it's it was a challenge in a lot of ways because it couldn't borrow from very it couldn't borrow from anything from Florida. It couldn't borrow from uh, California. It couldn't borrow from Europe. It really had to to be a, a new portfolio of of attractions, and that was the opportunity, a huge opportunity, and also I think the challenge. Well, I hope maybe that you'd be willing to come on the show again and talk to us specifically about Tokyo Disney Sea, some of the other uh, attractions and, and unique things that uh, that you were able to put in that park and your work overseas in Tokyo. I would love that very much. Thank you. Uh, let me just ask you quickly before we go. You're no longer with Imagineering. You uh, you were there for about 25 years. Are you still consulting now, or what are you doing now? Um, we're consulting my uh, wife, Kathy, who is the uh, director of the creative division at Imagineering for a while, um, doing staffing. And now she is working with me and my brother uh, uh, for Kirk Design Incorporated. And what we're doing is uh, some theme park work, some international type theme park work. We're also doing some museum work. Um, we've done a museum on science fiction that's been built. Uh, we're doing um, actually applying our theme park experience and design sensibilities to other industries, uh, to banking, believe it or not, to healthcare, to um, other places that want to get into more of a, a service-oriented and a consumer-oriented, friendly Disney approach to providing what they do. And um, that is fascinating because we're taking a whole um, consumer approach to what would make you happy going to this, this place and uh, uh, making use of these services from, from again, a Disney perspective. It's really, really fascinating. Well, again, you know, your your creativity and, and your brilliance and some of the things that you've created uh, in the Disney parks is something that I can say really is something that is appreciated still to this day by generations of fans, whether it be Figment, whether it be some of the attractions that maybe are gone but still kind of resonate in our minds. It's a, it's a testament to the quality and creativity of your work. And, uh, and you know, I personally really appreciate uh, everything that you've done uh, in and around the parks. Well, thank you very, very much. It was a real pleasure talking to you, and I've, I've had the pleasure also of working with some of the most wonderful people in the whole business in the history of the planet. Former Disney Imagineer Steve Kirk, thank you very much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you very much, Lou. Appreciate it. <laughs> 